Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Lindsay Hampson from the University of California, San Francisco, talking about pelvic fracture urethral injury. Um, well, welcome to the second hour of lecture today in our Urology COVID series. Um, it's really my honor to be giving a lecture in this series, which was, um, you know, started out of an effort to provide um, education for trainees in a time when they weren't getting other exposure because of the de decreased clinical volume because of the COVID outbreak. So um, I've really been humbled by the um, both the learners who are interested in continuing their education and participating in these lectures. We've had, you know, 300 to 600 participants for each lecture, which is amazing. And a lot of people are viewing the lectures afterwards too. Um, and we've had really an outpouring of interest from faculty members wanting to give uh, lectures, which is great and really speaks to, um, you know, our field as a whole and an interest in improving education for everyone. So I'm going to talk today on pelvic fracture urethral injuries. And um, this is really, I think, an overlap of two AUA guidelines, the Eurotrauma guideline as well as the urethral stricture guideline. So we'll try to make this a guidelines-based approach. Let's see, here we go. Okay, I don't have any financial disclosures. Um, I do have a personal disclosure, which is that I do have two young kids and I'm working at home, so hopefully they don't make an appearance. Um, but I saw this tweet the other day, which um, to totally encapsulates my experience. Um, and any residents who have worked with me, I think have had this exact experience with me where my toddler has come in, like asking me to wipe his bottom in the middle of a, a consult. So hopefully you don't, don't see them. All right, I'm gonna start um, by just trying to connect us all a little bit, because I know that while I can see that there are a lot of you, you can't see each other. Um, so if you can, um, either scan the QR code or go to slido.com and um, put in the participant number, which is N408, and tell me where you're joining in from. All right, so Philadelphia, San Francisco, Buffalo, Rochester, Durham, Ottawa, Chennai, India, Ottawa. This is awesome. So I think what's so cool about this series is really that um, it does kind of connect us from a lot of places. Um, and it's a way for us to, despite the, you know, social and physical distancing that we're doing, it's a way for us to feel connected as a community. So this is, this is really cool to see where everyone's from. We have people from Hershey, Syracuse, Tampa, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, Atlanta. So there's a, a big contingent from Philadelphia, Minneapolis, and Chicago, looks like. So that's great. All right, next, oh, Saudi Arabia, I saw too. We have, um, we've had a lot of international participation, um, which is really cool to see as well. Mexico too, cool. All right, next I'm just gonna ask a question about what level of training you're at so I get a sense of where you guys are coming from. Residents are fast on the uptake. We have a few Practicing urologists, we have some medical students, fellows, advanced practice providers, 
but mostly residents. All right, awesome. Okay, next, um, I wanna ask some questions just about the impact of COVID um, on your experiences as um, trainees. You know, how much has this impacted your clinical or outpatient volume? Oops, sorry, I ended that a little early. Okay, so it looks like for most people, it's really a significant decrease in volume. Um, only a few people have had no change or an increase in volume. Okay, what about your operative case volume? Big decrease in volume. That's not surprising in our own institution. We've really, um, you know, shut down the operating rooms. We're only doing urgent or emergent cases. And I think that's probably most people's experiences. I'm sure we will see a time when our operative volume goes up significantly once it's safe to operate again. Um, lastly, what about your inpatient care volume? How much impact has COVID had on the inpatients that you're caring for? Yeah, still some people coming in, but seems like big decreases in volume, which is consistent with what we're seeing here. Okay, great. Um, I wanted to um, get some of that information because, um, you know, the whole reason that we're trying to do this series is because of the impact on education. And to that end, I'm just going to really quickly call attention to um, a survey that we've posted on our website. This is a urology group out of Italy who is collecting some information on um, online education for urology, urology residents. It's being led by one of the chief re residents in Florence. So if you have three minutes to spare, um, click on the um, survey link and do the three minute survey and give them some data about how your education has been impacted by COVID. All right, getting to the meat of things. So like I said, I'm gonna to try to make this a guidelines-based talk. Um, there are two AUA guidelines, the male urethral stricture guidelines and the urotrauma guidelines that um, both have some specifics on pelvic fracture urethral injuries. And um, there's also an SIU ICUD consultation um, on pelvic fracture urethral injuries. So that's a useful source of information as well. Um, I'm gonna to try to call out the guidelines. They'll be in orange. Um, and I have a kind of at the bottom, I'll point out which guideline it comes from, just so you know. And this is definitely something that's testable, so it's really good to review it. All right, our first question related to our, our pelvic fracture urethral injuries. Where does the injury to the urethra usually occur in pelvic fracture urethral injuries? Is it the penile urethra, the penobulbar junction, the bulbar urethra, bulbomembranous junction, membranous urethra? Prostatic, urethra, bladder, neck. Okay, great. So it looks like about two thirds of people are saying the bulbomembranous junction. Um, and that's right. Um, most of the time, injuries occur at the bulbomembranous junction. And I think this is the best picture I could find to really show why this happens. Um, so I think there's there's two keys, which is there are attachments um, here to the pubic bone. 
Um, and if you see, this is the puboprostatic ligament right here. And this is um, attaching the prostate to the pubic bone. And then there is also the perineal membrane, which has some attachments to the pubic bone as well. And so that really anchors the urethra in place to this bony landmark. And so as a result, when you have um, pelvic injuries and usually have um, you know, shearing injuries to the urethra, the disruption and the injury usually happens right here at the junction between the membranous urethra, which sits at the perineal membrane, um, and the bulbar urethra. So that's usually the place that is injured. That said, um, in children, sometimes that's different. Um, the injury can be more proximal because the prostate is more underdeveloped. I put up this staging system um, just to remind myself to mention that there are a few staging systems that exist that AAST has one, EAU has one. They are honestly not widely used. I think the most important thing that people like to distinguish when they're evaluating urethral injuries is, is it a partial disruption or a complete disruption? And in a partial disruption, you usually, on performing a retrograde urethrogram, will see contrast going into the bladder. Whereas with a complete disruption, usually no contrast will get into the bladder. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's, nobody, I think really widely uses these um, grading systems, but it's good to know that they exist. So the classic sign of urethral injury is blood at the meatus, and often patients will have a distended bladder they won't be able to avoid. Um, you may see a scrotal or perineal butterfly hematoma. Um, it's described that, you know, on DRE you can feel a high-riding prostate. I have never felt this, um, but, uh, you know, it's definitely a buzzword to look out for if you're taking an exam. Um, and really just remember that you should have a suspicion for urethral injury in patients with pelvic fracture and particularly with fractures of the pelvic ring, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, remember that, um, you know, you should perform a retrograde urethrogram in patients with blood at the meatus after pelvic trauma, and that's really important um, to make the diagnosis. So this is a 35-year-old man who is involved in a motor vehicle accident. He had pelvic fractures and blood at the meatus, and this is a retrograde urethrogram that was performed. Um, and you can see here in the first picture, um, you see the uh, contrast going into the bulbar urethra. Um, I will note he had a CT scan with contrast before he had this rug done. So he does have contrast in the bladder. That's not from his rug, but it's actually from his previous contrast that he received with a CT scan. Um, and then you can see here there's more extravasation of this contrast, and this contrast is not getting into the proximal portion of his urethra here. So this is a complete disruption. So the next question is, if you saw this retrograde urethrogram, what would be your next step? Do you try to place a catheter, give it one attempt? Do you place a suprapubic tube? Do you go for urethral realignment? Or do you take this patient to the operating room and explore and try to repair this? So it looks like some people would try to place a catheter. There's some people who would try to realign only a Few people are going for surgical exploration, and the mo most people are, are advocating for placement of a suprapubic tube. Um, 
Great. So we're going to go through this a little bit, you know, thinking about the acute management for pelvic fracture urethral injuries. Um, I think one thing to remember is that these patients often have concomitant injuries, and so the acute management will really also depend on um, how hemodynamically stable and what other injuries they have. About 90% of patients with pelvic fracture urethral injuries have um, other injuries that need to be managed as well. Um, so a single attempt at catheter placement, um, you know, this is definitely something that's feasible. There's this concern, which is, is there's not necessarily data about saying that maybe you could convert a partial injury to a complete injury. Um, but um, like I said, I don't, I don't think there's any data to truly support that. Um, in partial injuries, a catheter is able to pass in about 50% of the time based on data. So um, it isn't unreasonable to try a single attempt at a catheter placement. I would say if you do a retrograde urethrogram and you see that it's a complete distraction, you probably are just going, to, you're not gonna try to place a catheter. But if you see a partial injury, maybe it's worth it. Um, you can try one pass of a catheter, and if it doesn't go, if you're not getting yellow urine out, um, you know, if it's not draining, then you're going to remove that catheter and do something else instead. Primary surgical repair. Um, this was first described by Hugh Hampton Young in 1929, and, and the goal was to evacuate the pelvic hematoma and repair the urethra. These um, surgeries had you know, high blood loss, high morbidity, high complication rates without good outcomes, stricture formed in about 50% of them, high rates of urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. Um, but you know, just for historic sake, this was from a publication again in 1929 in the Journal of Urology by Hugh Hampton Young, who was talking about um, you know, repair of these traumatic urethral injuries. Um, and here's some pictures from the article. You can see on the left here, you have um, the distended bladder, this hematoma um, that's at the site of the distraction injury, and the remainder of the urethra. And here on the right, um, you know, the, the distal end of the urethra here, the proximal end of the urethra here, and he's showing how he completed an anastomosis and repaired it. So. Um, pretty cool historic context. These days, we really don't do um, acute surgical management unless there are um, other concomitant injuries like a rectal injury or a bladder neck injury. And we worry that in those cases, there is um, a, you know, a high risk of fistula formation and it's worth it to go in and repair it right away. So really what we do and what the guidelines recommend are just establishing prompt urinary drainage. And for the most part, that's gonna mean a suprapubic tube. Um, like I said, you know, maybe you make one attempt at a catheter placement, um, but really what you wanna do is just get the bladder drained and place a suprapubic tube. And, and these patients, you know, they do have other injuries. And so usually they're gonna to need to be, um, you know, stabilized from all of those other injuries and the fastest and, and best way to get urinary drainage is placing a suprapubic tube. Now, endoscopic realignment um, is something that is talked about a lot. Uh, there's a lot of argument and uh, discussion about um, whether or not we should do primary endoscopic urethral realignment. I would say if you do place a suprapubic tube and you're planning to do urethral realignment later, it really helps to place a council tip catheter because that helps you establish your access into the bladder later. Um, so I'm gonna go through just a little bit of this kind of debate on primary endoscopic urethral realignment. Um, like I said, there are really kind of two camps. Um, one group who advocates for primary realignment um, 
there is there are data that show that it can increase the success of future endoscopic management. So if you think that you're kind of helping the patient down the line to have more likely, you know, success from a urethrotomy and not have to go through a urethroplasty, then that's a reason to do it. Um, there's the chance that you could avoid open reconstruction, and that's because there are some patients who just get realigned and need no further interventions. And then, like I mentioned, there are some who will have success at endoscopic management. Um, even if they end up needing a urethroplasty in the future, uh, people will advocate for having better alignment of those proximal and distal segments, and so that makes your surgery easier. Um, it makes it so that you can easily identify those segments, and perhaps that you're less likely to perform those ancillary maneuvers that you might have to do in a urethroplasty. Um, there's also some controversy about um, whether the, you know it's some orthopedic surgeons will. Um, try to ask for primary realignment because they want the suprapubic tube out of the field of orthopedic hardware, like especially if they're plating a pelvis. And so sometimes it can be useful in that context. Um, the people who kind of advocate against urethral realignment say that, you know, most of these patients are going to have a urethroplasty anyway, so it's an unnecessary procedure. Um, the chance that it works on its own is very low. Um, you know, these patients may then subsequently undergo multiple endoscopic procedures because since the urethra is aligned, you know, people try endoscopic procedures and this may result in a longer time to stricture and to delay is definitive reconstruction. Um, there's also data that shows that if you do realignment, there's no difference in the, in the long run in terms of their rates of urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. And like I said, there's a lot of debate on this. There are a lot of studies. They're mostly um, small you know, cohort studies that are published retrospectively out of institutions. I've cited some of those studies down below, and I think I put a slide at the end, which should be on the website, um, that kind of talks in more detail about the data on this. Um, but I would say you know, there's not a definitive study that really um, tells us. Um, luckily, the TURNS network is they are currently um, running a prospective multi-institutional cohort study. And this is really to try to answer this question of urethral realignment versus suprapubic tube. So hopefully we'll have an answer after this study's done, or at least a better answer. Um, so in terms of primary endoscopic urethral realignment, what do the guidelines say? Um, the guidelines give an option for it. So they say clinicians can perform it in hemodynamically stable patients with these PFUIs. Um, and that they should not perform prolonged attempts. So I think a few important things from that. Um, number one, these should be patients who are stable. So this is not the time to do it on a you know, crashing patient in the trauma bay. And um, at Harborview, when I was there as a fellow, we often did urethral realignments in, in most patients with pelvic fracture urethral injuries. And we would typically wait until the patient was stable um, so we could bring them to the operating room where we had our cystoscopic equipment, we had fluoroscopy. Um, often we would do it in the context of them coming to the operating room for another reason. Perhaps they were going with orthopedic surgery for you know, fixation of their pelvis. Um, and then another important thing is really not to do any prolonged attempts. So if after 20 to 30 minutes you're not able to realign, then you should not continue endeavoring to get this done. You just risk, you know, having uh, the irrigation fluid kind of extravasate into the space. And, um, and so, you know, making sure that you kind of set a timer for yourself. And if you can't get it, you just leave the suprapubic tube. 
And I put a link in here, um, and it should have been in the pre-reading materials as well, um, to a video that we made um, when I was a fellow that kind of talks you step-by-step -step on how to do primary realignment. Um, so I'm interested to know uh, of those of you who are listening, how many of you perform endoscopic alignment at your institution? Um, is it kind of a standard where you do it in most cases? Um, do you never do it? Do you sometimes do it depending on who's staffing the case or you know what the injury is? Okay, so looks like maybe about a third of people never do it. Uh, about 40% sometimes depends on the attending. And maybe about 10 to 15% do it in most cases. Okay, great. So for those of you who never do it, I'll just briefly kind of take you through the process. Um, this is what the setup looks like. And like I said, you know, we always would do it in the operating room where you have two towers, you have two scopes, you have your renal dilators, which you use to get suprapubic access. Um, and you do want two people there to help perform it. Um, it you know, this is definitely a two person job and you have a scope going suprapubically and another scope going uh, through the urethra. Fluoroscopy is really helpful, and um, you know, this can help you make sure that your scopes are aligned. And um, you can see on the left, this is an AP view where you can see the scope from above and the scope from below are in alignment. And then you also want to get an oblique view and you kind of go back and forth between the AP and the oblique views until it looks like you're kind of aligned in both positions. And that can really help you to make sure you're in the right space. Okay, I'm gonna see if this works. This is just a small clip from the video um, that I referenced that shows kind of the moment where these scopes are coming, one from the suprapubic side and one from the urethral side. So let's see. We are looking at the view from the urethral scope, which maintains its light source throughout the procedure. The scope is advanced to the site of injury and then waits there while the other scope turns off its light and seeks the light of this scope. We see the suprapubic scope come into view. A wire is then passed through the urethral scope and into the suprapubic scope. Okay, so you can kind of see then how you basically get a wire all the way across. And you can take that wire and put a council tip catheter um, into the urethra over that wire, and that allows you to be able to remove the suprapubic tube. So I do wanna just spend one slide talking about um, cost effectiveness, because there was a study out of Vanderbilt done that um, basically tried to answer the question of, well, how should we be managing these pelvic fracture urethral injuries from a cost standpoint? And the first question they asked was, you know, should we be attempting primary urethral realignment versus just placing a suprapubic tube? And in all of the iterations they did, primary realignment was preferred as most more cost-effective. And I think that makes sense. You know, if you place a suprapubic tube, you know you're buying yourself a urethroplasty down the road. Um, whereas if you primary do primary realignment, um, first of all, there's a chance that you don't need to do anything afterwards. That's a very low chance, but it exists. And then there's also a chance that you might be able to manage them endoscopically successfully. Um, then they looked at, you know, how many, uh, you know, in terms of after primary realignment, do you go straight to urethroplasty versus, you know, do you do a urethrotomy, and if so, how many? And what they found was the least costly was doing a single attempt at a DVIU, 
And if that doesn't work, then doing a urethroplasty. And they found that the increased um, cost effectiveness ratio of adding on subsequent DBIUs just increased the price um, by a lot. So really, by their analysis, you should only do a single DBIU, no more than that. And if that didn't work, do a urethroplasty. Now, one really important thing to notice on this is that um, the you know likelihood of success of that DBIU really determines um, if this is still cost effective. And if the chance of a successful DBIU is less than 32%, then the cost effectiveness analysis would favor immediate urethroplasty. And so I would say, you know, in most cases of these, especially incomplete injuries, a chance of a DBIU being successful is gonna be much less than 30%. And so that's why in, the, in most cases, people are gonna go straight to, uh, you know, immediate urethroplasty. So what do the guidelines say about this? Um, they advocate for delayed urethroplasty. Um, and specifically, they um, make a point that you should avoid repeated endoscopic maneuvers. So you know, if you think that there's a chance of an endoscopic, like one endoscopic incision being successful, you can try that. But you certainly shouldn't try more than one because we know that the, the chance of long-term success in that uh, scenario is very low. And um, you know, I think even in studies that show higher success rates for that single urethrotomy, remember that these are patients who are highly selected. So these are not just all comers. These are patients who you think you might have a chance of success at a urethrotomy. Um, and we know that you know, going through multiple endoscopic procedures can delay time to definitive reconstruction. So that adds a lot of morbidity for the patients. Um, and often the fastest and you know, kind of surest way to fixing it is just going straight to a urethroplasty. All right, so talking about urethroplasty, um, one important thing is that, um, you know, like I said, uh, from the kind of acute management where Hugh Hampton Young was presenting on his experience of managing these acutely, we really do wait and do these um, repairs in a delayed fashion, and that's because we see better outcomes with them. And so the guidelines say that you should wait until all of their other injuries are stabilized and the patients can be safely positioned before you do a urethroplasty for pelvic fracture urethral injuries. And I would say most people say, um, you know, this means waiting about three months, and it could be longer depending on the patient's injuries. Um, there was, I saw a small case-based series that um, looked at operating earlier at three to six weeks, but, um, you know, and reported no difference in outcomes. This was a very small series, and I think um, also probably represents highly selected patients. So really important um, and guidelines-based is that preoperatively, um, these patients need a retrograde urethrogram and avoiding cystourethrogram. And I really um, liked these pictures to kind of show the importance of this. So if you see this um, antegrade and retrograde right here, you can see you know, the retrograde filling the urethra up to the bulb. And then the antegrade, um, you can see that the contrast you know, goes all the way down here to the other end of the urethral segment. And I think that voiding cystourethrogram is really important in order to see the posterior urethra and where it's located. Um, some people will also do retrograde and antegrade cystoscopy, and uh, the guidelines allow for that. Um, before surgery, you know, urinalysis, urine culture, and then um, often if these patients have suprapubic tubes, I'll give them a, a broader antibiotic 
something like ceftriaxone. Um, and then really importantly, you need to evaluate the ability of these patients to be positioned in lithotomy. And remember, these are often patients who have had really severe pelvic injuries. And so you need to make sure those pelvic injuries have been treated and they're able to uh, you know, get safely into lithotomy position um, to be positioned for surgery. So in terms of surgical technique, um, you know, transperineal one-stage surgery is really the gold standard. And this means excising any of the scar tissue and then spatulating an end-to-end -end anastomosis. And there are uh, sometimes these kind of ancillary maneuvers that are required. And there was a nice turns paper that was published um, last year that looked at the um, likelihood of needing to do this. And they found that in about a third of cases, um, these ancillary maneuvers were needed. So curl splitting, inferior pubectomy, or supercurl rerouting, and we'll talk about those. Um, and then really rarely you needed an abdominoperineal approach. Most of these can really be done through the perineum. So this picture I think is really nice. It shows you exactly what we're doing in surgery. Here's the proximal end of the urethra, which you know the scar has been cut away. It's nice and open. Um, here's the distal end of the urethra, and importantly, you know you need to mobilize this end. This is where you get a lot of length so that the anastomosis is not on tension. Um, here in this picture, you can see that they've done curl splitting. So these are the curl bodies here, and there is a midline here, and I just use a bovi to actually split. And by separating the curl bodies, you actually can make a groove where the urethra can then sit, and it kind of decreases the length that the urethra has to traverse to get to the proximal segment. Similarly, um, you know, the other idea is that once you've split the cura, you can then actually take out a portion of the inferior pubic bone right here. And um, you know, this you just use an osteotome and you can carve out a little wedge shape here. And again, that decreases the distance that the urethra from up here, that distal segment has to go to get to the proximal segment down here. And then lastly, which I would say is pretty rare that we need to do this, is supracural rerouting. So in that case, what you do is you basically make a window under one of the curl bodies and you can route the urethra under the curl body. So instead of having to go over the cura, um, you take advantage of that kind of shorter distance. And that can be a third ancillary maneuver that you can use. And then here you can just see that um, you know, they're doing a spatulated anastomosis. So postoperatively, usually the catheter is left for four weeks and uh, patients get avoiding cystourethrogram at the time of catheter removal. Um, most people will follow up with these patients with uroflow and cystoscopy um, at three and 12 months. Um, and the success rates for this surgery are really good. So, you know, 90 to 95% success rates, and this is in many, many series. Um, of those that fail, so they have a stricture recurrence, at least half, and in some series more than that, are amenable to just a single endoscopic procedure. And usually I would say that's an incision. Um, so, you know, in terms of long-term success for your stricture-free um, rates, it's the, this operation is, is really um, very successful. I do think it's important to also think about some of the longer-term quality of life outcomes. Um, the chance of incontinence is actually low, so it's about three to five percent, depending on the series you look at. And the reason for this is that you know males have a bladder neck uh, mechanism for a sphincter, and usually that is not injured. Um, so even if there's injury to the membranous urethra, which there usually is in these injuries, um, they still maintain um, continence because of that proximal bladder neck sphincter. 
mechanism. Now, obviously, if they have a bladder neck injury or, um, you know, they've had bladder neck surgery in the past, that's, um, that might be different. Um, but for the most part, the chance of incontinence is quite low. And then, um, you know, the chance of erectile dysfunction is fairly significant and, you know, 30 to 40% depending on the series. And so I'm just going to spend um, a minute talking about erectile dysfunction. Um, there's been a lot of studies trying to understand, um, you know, is the, 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 are these rates of erectile dysfunction really just because of pelvic fractures, or are they specifically related to the pelvic fracture urethral injuries? And rates of ED after a pelvic fracture range from about 5 to 20 percent. Um, and studies that have looked at this. And, and you can imagine that this probably depends also on the severity of the pelvic fractures. Um, rates of erectile dysfunction associated with pelvic fracture urethral injuries specifically are a little bit higher, 40 to 60%. I did see one recent meta-analysis that um, showed a 30% rate. So, you know, probably these pelvic fracture urethral injuries are also associated with more severe pelvic fractures, but there can also be something about the urethral injury itself that actually predisposes to erectile dysfunction. Um, and the etiology has been kind of hypothesized as damage to the nervous supply of the penis, um, arterial insufficiency, or veno-occlusive dysfunction. And I will say that in studies that have used um, validated patient-reported outcome measures, about half of these patients have severe ED. So these are not patients who just have some mild ED. Um, you know, many of these patients really do have severe ED. And there have been a few multivariable analyses that have looked at, um, you know, what is it that increases the risk for severity of ED. And a few things have been identified in, in various analyses, and these are pubic diastasis, so the amount of, if there is pubic diastasis and then the amount, um, lateral prostatic displacement, and also a long urethral gap. So all of these things have been shown to worsen um, erectile function. I do want to also make a mention of children. Um, so um, one of the largest series is by Dr. Mackinich out of UCSF, and he published his experience with blunt pediatric urethral trauma over 32 years. And in that time period, he had eight anterior and 18 posterior strictures, and those posterior ones are the pelvic fracture urethral injuries. And he reported his outcomes with a mean of three years of follow-up. And um, the majority of these were an anastomotic repair um, for the anterior strictures. If they were longer, then they, um, you, they got a ventral buckle graft. Um, looking just at his pelvic fracture urethral injuries, his outcomes were 90% success rate of being stricture-free at that three-year follow-up mean. Um, and so you can see this is really equivalent to what we're seeing in the adults uh, population. We did then go back and look at the very long-term outcome of these series to try to understand, okay, if these injuries happened in children, um, what are their chances of having problems way down the road later in life? And we were able to contact 15 patients uh, with a mean follow-up of 18 years. And in that time, one had gone an un a subsequent endoscopic intervention. I think it was a dilation, but no one else had. So that really speaks to the success of these um, surgeries. Eight of these patients had pelvic fracture urethral injuries, and the mean follow-up of those patients was 20 years. So this is really long-term data. And then you can see I just put up a table. These posterior patients, these eight are the pelvic fracture urethral injuries. And um, you can see that, you know, based on their shim, their um, urethral symptoms score, 
a stricture symptom score, their erectile function, and their overall quality of life, these numbers are all really high. So these patients, you know, even in the very long term, had very good outcomes. Um, lastly, I also want to mention female pelvic fracture urethral injuries. Obviously, everything we've been talking about so far is, you know, all of the male anatomy. Um, I'm certainly not an expert in female pelvic fracture urethral injuries, but that said, you know, anyone who um, treats these and, and does trauma will see these from time to time. There's a really nice series, um, a systematic review that was published in BJUI in 2017, which is where I draw this from, um, that kind of does a nice uh, job of detailing the epidemiology and etiology and pathophysiology and outcomes. And um, I just put this up, they look at different repair types and then also the various outcomes. So stricture, fistula formation, de novo incontinence, vaginal stenosis, or the patient ultimately getting a urinary diversion. Um, and there were some of these female uh, urethral injury patients that got primary realignment, about 11% um, in the review. A little under half got a primary anastomotic repair, so that's you know going in right at the time of um, you know injury and trying to repair these urethral injuries, and then um, about half had a delayed repair. And I think it is interesting, you know, in the male literature, we really talk about a delayed repair because we know that the outcomes are much better. But in the female uh, literature, you know, this really may be different. And particularly, I think if you look at the risk of de novo incontinence and vaginal stenosis and even the rates of urinary diversion, you know, these are small numbers, but um, delayed repair may have worse morbidity and worse outcomes. So, um, you know, it may be that these injuries uh, are more likely to um, have better success rates when repaired primarily. And I think often this is in the context of vaginal injuries. And so, you know, it is important to avoid fistulas to think about um, whether we should repair these early. So I wanna leave time for questions. Um, and so I'll end with some take home points. Um, remember, you think about urethral injury in the context of pelvic fractures. And actually I just realized some of my slides on pelvic fractures I think got left out, but hopefully they're in the slides online. So you can see um, you know, some of the injuries um, where we know that you're at higher risk of having a pelvic fracture urethral injury is with pubic symphysis diastasis and also inferior displaced fractures of the inferior pubic ramus. Those two types of fractures certainly do increase your risk of a urethral injury. And then, you know, the highest chance of urethral injury is with these ring fractures. So that means that you have disruption of the pelvic ring. So you have a fracture somewhere on the anterior portion, if it's the pubic symphysis or in the pubic ramus. And then you also have a fracture at the sacroiliac joint. And that really makes for an unstable pelvis. And about 25% of patients with those ring fractures will have associated urethral injuries. So you can look for more data um, in the slides online. Um, and remember that you know, usually these injuries do happen at the bulbomembranous junction. Um, get a retrograde urethrogram for diagnosis. This is really important um, to make the diagnosis. And remember that the most impor important part of acute management is just 
prompt urinary drainage. So if that's one attempt at a catheter versus just going to a straight to a suprapubic tube, um, really the most important thing is getting the urine drained. And then once the patient is stable, you can consider urethral realignment. Um, if you think, if you do it in your practice or if you, um, you know, think that it might improve outcomes and um, I do have a slide also online that I think goes into a little bit more of the data if you're interested in that. Definitive management for these injuries is delayed anastomotic urethroplasty, and this is done usually at about three months afterwards. Um, the long-term outcomes in terms of stricture-free rates is excellent, 90 to 95%, but um, you know, do remember that the concomitant burden of erectile dysfunction is significant, and so you do need to assess for erectile dysfunction and think about ways to um, help patients manage this. So please remember to um, fill out surveys. These surveys are really helpful for us because um, they're allowing us ways to make sure that we can improve the series uh, where necessary. It also gives lecturers feedback on their um, um, lectures. So thank you for filling those out. Even if you watch this later, you can fill out a survey online. And um, with that, I'm happy to take any questions. All right, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Nena Monu. I'm currently the uh, Reconstruction Fellow uh, here at UCSF. And so we'll get started with some questions for Dr. Hampson. So uh, several questions uh, were posed relating to primary alignment. Um, a common question that came up is, if you're able to place a catheter or perform realignment, do you usually place a superpubic tube at some point as well? Yeah, great question. So. Typically, if you are able to realign and get a urethral catheter in, we would remove the suprapubic tube at that time. Um, later on, you may need to replace a catheter because you know the chance of them having a stricture is high. So you know there's different ways to manage that. Some people will just say, "Well, I'm going to leave the suprapubic tube in because I know that they may need it in the future." Other people will remove the suprapubic tube, especially if you're worried about you know the orthopedic hardware and not wanting to contaminate that, um, and then replace it only if after you remove the catheter, if they need to end up needing to have um, another way of diversion. So I would say it's practitioner dependent. Um, at Harborview, when I was there and we did a lot of urethral realignment, we would typically remove the suprapubic tube so that patients wouldn't have to you know, worry about having two different um, catheters, which can, you know, be morbid, they would have the urethral catheter in. And then once that urethral catheter came out, we would monitor them for development of, uh, you know, recurrence of stricture. And if that happened, then they would get a suprapubic tube placed at that time. Okay, great. And then to tag along to that, um, how long would you leave the urethral Foley catheter in place? Yeah, usually it's left in four to six weeks. Um, and again, it's probably practitioner dependent. Um, I think another important thing is you have to think about it in the context of their other injuries. So, you know, often some of these patients are hospitalized for a long period of time. They're immobilized for a long period of time because of their other injuries. So obviously, you know, you have to kind of think about that as well. But um, usually about four to six weeks, the catheter is left in and then it's uh, removed. And at the time of removal, it is good to do an x-ray study uh, um, again to see if the injury has healed, because obviously if there's still extrapolation, then you're not going to want to remove the catheter at that time. Okay. And then still on the same topic of realignment, um, what type and size of catheter would you recommend using for realignment? 
Yeah, so a council tip catheter, just because remember when you're doing the realignment, you're basically getting a wire across, and so you want to utilize that to place the catheter. Um, and, you know, 16, we standardly use just a 16 French catheter, and that's the catheter that's left in place afterwards. Okay. Um, in talking about um, um, staging the patient, you had mentioned getting a retrograde urethrogram, which is uh, uh, critical to sort of understand what's going on. The question that came up is, would you also potentially obtain a VCG as well? Yes, I think obtaining a VCG is essential. So I think I showed that picture of, you know, just the VCG really helps you to see how much of the posterior urethra um, is present, where it's located, so that you can really tell the distraction uh, between the two segments. So if you get the uh, voiding cystourethrogram and the retrograde urethrogram, you really have a much better idea of seeing where those two segments are, how much distance is in between them, so you can anticipate when you go in for surgery um, both where to find them and, and how much um, distraction there's going to be between the two segments. Great. Um, and then thinking about patients with partial injuries um, and Um, would you potentially do this blindly or with cystoscopy? Do you potentially think there's a use to doing this with the cystoscope? Sorry, Nana, I lost you for a minute. You said in patients with partial injuries. Right, sorry. So in patients with partial injuries, um, it's, and there, let's say that um, we're doing a single attempt catheter placement, would you recommend doing this blindly? Is there any um, utility to doing this with a cystoscope? Um, yeah, you could you could do it either way. So I think, you know, the question is always, well, you know, you do a retrograde urethrogram, you know, the patient's in the trauma bay, they need a catheter, can you just try to place a catheter blindly? Um, you know, I think it probably varies from person to person, but many people will say, well, try to make one attempt by somebody experienced at placing a catheter and see if it goes. If it doesn't, then stop. Um, others will say, you know, I worry about you know, forming a complete transection from a partial injury. And so um, in that case, you know, don't try a catheter placement or if you do, do it with a scope. Um, so I would say there's, there's not um, data that really shows us how often partial injuries are then transformed into complete injuries by catheter placement. So we don't really have data to go on, but many times people will just attempt a single uh, pass at a catheter placement blindly to see if it goes. Got it. And, um, uh, thoughts with primary alignment. Um, in the lecture, you had mentioned doing primary alignment with a cystoscope through the urethra and also through this pubic tube tract. A question came up, um, would you potentially do it only using a cystoscope through the urethra with the wire and fluoroscopy? Yeah, I mean, you can, I would say you want to load the boat if you're doing this and it's really much easier to do it with a scope both from above and below. Um, for any of you who have done this before, you know that, um, you know, while you think you should know where the other segment is, you really don't, um, because once that urethra with, you know, especially with complete distraction injuries, once the urethra is separated, it's really in a totally different plane. Each segment are in, is in a different plane. And so it really does help to have both scopes, one from above and one from below. And the key, and you can see this if you watch the video, I think the key is really that you're using the light from one scope to help guide you. 
So um, at the point when you use fluoroscopy and you get both of the scopes aligned, what you'll do is you'll actually turn off the light of one scope and then the other scope will try to find the light of the other one. And that's really, um, I think, you know, has helped to be successful in urethral realignment is to use that light to kind of guide you to where you need to be. Um, and, and once you find both scopes, then you can easily pass a, a wire between the two scopes and really know that you're getting that wire all the way through and through. Got it. Okay. Specifically on the repair um, for pelvic floor urethral injury, urethroplasty, uh, one question came up. Um, I think during the lecture, you'd mentioned several approaches um, for um, getting um, sort of attention-free anastomosis. One question came up is, how would you approach an injury that involves too much injured tissue, too much injured tissue, and cannot be anastomosed in a tension-free manner? Sorry, repeat the last part of that question again. In a urethroplasty. Right. So an injury that involves too much injured tissue mm -hmm. um, and cannot be anastomosed in a tension-free manner. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I talked about those ancillary maneuvers. I would say, you know, and, and based on the turns data, about a third of the time those were needed. But honestly, most of the time, it's really just about mobilizing that distal urethral segment. Um, you know, there's a lot of laxity in that bulbar urethra. And by dissecting out the, um, the distal segment, you can get a lot of length. And so, um, you know, in almost all cases, um, even if you can't get enough length by just mobilizing the distal urethra, by using those other ancillary maneuvers, you're going to be able to get things to reach without tension. So I think, you know, almost, almost every time um, you're able to get those two segments. And, and typically I'll say with these injuries, there is not a significant amount of scar tissue um, on each end of the, the transected segments. Um, so it's not like you're losing a lot of length on the urethra. And so that's why you're able to be successful in getting these two back together. Um, often the problem is that these segments are malaligned uh, because of the distraction and the injury. And so you basically, you know, you may have to kind of go through and um, cut out, cut these segments out of the scar tissue that's formed in order to get them in realignment. But often it's not that you have a significant length of stricture of the urethra. So you have not necessarily lost a lot of length in the urethra from the injury itself, which is why you can be successful in anastomosing them primarily. Great. And I think probably time for one more question. Um, this question is about identifying the proximal urethra in the repair. Mm -hmm. um, whether you, you recommend using a cystoscope um, dilator to cut down intraoperatively? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, it's really key to have access um, to the proximal segment because it can be difficult to find it. Um, that's why some people advocate for realignment because they think it's easier to find those proximal segments if the urethra has been realigned. Um, but two things you can do. One is just using a sound. So you put that sound, you know, the curved sound, you put it right into the suprapubic tract, and then you can feel that as it goes into the bladder neck. And using that can be really helpful because then from the perineum, you can actually feel the tip of that sound and cut onto that in order to find the proximal segment of the urethra. Um, some people do use cystoscopes to do that instead, um, but I would say probably most people find that using a sound works just fine and you're able to identify that proximal segment and know where it is um, so that you can open it up, find the lumen, and then spatulate it to create your anastomosis.
Great, thank you. And um, with that, I think we may be out of time. Um, just a reminder that the questions will be on the website uh, that were not answered during the webinar. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks everyone for participating. I'm happy to answer all of the questions offline and post them and hopefully my slides are up as well. Um, I just, again, wanna say thank you to everyone for tuning in and making this such a successful series and we really wanna to try to continue it into the future and please make sure that you're all staying safe, you're uh, you know, social distancing, wearing masks and keeping yourselves safe so that we can continue to take care of patients as well. So thanks and have a great rest of your week. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.